He wants us to play attractive football, wants us you know, to get the crowd on our feet. Supports have been magnificent and they're singing my name, but I'm happier that they're singing about the players. Will it be another Stephen Kenny love in this international window? We've got the best coverage and analysis right here on OTP Sports Radio. Oh, the shade that will care. You keep all the fans down. Can we not lock it? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was on a beach, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. I answer questions on anything about religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you, except for those two, have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you, disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33 and a call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening. Coming up on tonight's show, we're going to be doing something a little bit different with the Oscars just around the corner. We thought, why not do a little bit of Oscar chat, but for the Premier League? And to do that, I'm joined by OTB's movie buff, Ronan Mullen. How are you? I'm honoured to get that title end. And I just want to put on the record... I love this concept. This is a great concept. Like I vote for this to be the future concept for all Team 33 episodes. Let's shoehorn in pop culture references to everything we do. Well, we had to we had to get you on for this because I know you're uh, a big movie man. Willow Callan, how are you? Are you a movie man as well? Yeah, I enjoy movies, but admittedly, I haven't seen a whole lot of them over the last year. I had a quick look last night when you said this was going to be the format and even looking through Best Picture, I was like, yeah, I've seen one of these and I pretty much haven't been to the cinema in over a year. I think I went to see Spider-Man in the cinema recently enough, but that's about it. So I actually haven't been following along with the award season movies as much as I usually would be. I don't know about you, Ronan. Did you get a chance to watch many of these? Like what I would say, and it's a point that we've we've spoken about in more casual conversation, that I think the what you're alluding to, Will, like people's reluctance to go to the cinema in the last couple of years and also the, the practicalities of literally not being able to go has possibly stymied the creative juices of Hollywood. I think if there are like these blockbuster films in the pipeline, they're possibly thinking there's not there's not much point in putting these out there when we're not quite sure what the box office receipts are going to be. There are notable exceptions. You've mentioned one of them, Spider-Man, such a behemoth that it's going to, you know, it's always going to blow the doors off the place. And similarly, Batman, like a, a huge success once again. So I think the Oscars had, they reached a juncture about 10 years ago where viewing figures were dropping and interest was dropping. And there was a big clamor for them to pivot to include more of the these mainstream films. Like, it's a bit bizarre that Batman doesn't feature heavily or Spider-Man just in terms of the pop culture impact that they had. But the Oscars just decided to remain a closed shop. They reward what they reward. And that's why we get to this point where a lot of these films are very niche films that 90% of the general population haven't seen. And Sean, like the Will Smith angle, whereby I think he's in with a very good shout of winning his Academy Award somewhat belatedly. Like some people think he should have got it for Pursuit of Happiness and he's got a very good chance of getting it here with King Richard. So I think that's probably the one uh, storyline heading into these Oscars that people might be able to to grapple with a little. Yeah, so like I was looking at the nominations for this year's awards and uh, for Best Picture, I've seen Don't Look Up. Uh, I haven't seen June. I actually wasn't sure... The internet reaction to June, I wasn't sure whether it was a good film or a bad film because the memes were just all over the shop with it. Then, you know, best actor you've got. It's actually a pretty stacked best actor list with 
Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom, which I'm not even sure was a cinema release. I think that was just a, a Netflix release, as far as I know. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Denzel is up, as as is Will Smith. So, I mean, the the one thing I will say, Ron, I'm not sure if you've seen this. Uh, have you seen Don't Look Up? Yes. What did you think of Don't Look Up? Because that was very, very 50-50. Either you hit it or you loved it. So I'm interested to see what category you're in. Yeah, that was another one where... Like it's difficult unless you watch these Netflix releases in the first like 12 hours of the release. There's so many spoilers just flood your social media. So yeah, I saw this sort of reaction from, from both sides. I would like annoyingly would fall somewhat down in the middle. I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was spectacular. Like if it was a host of no name cast members, I think it would have fallen a bit flat, but because it's just absolutely star studded and there are some like fantastic little cameos in it. I think it just about get over the line but I'm not sure if it should be in the in the conversation for for a top award like this having said that like the subject matter they're trying to grapple with is you know very much of its age so it could be one of these films like The Social Network which ages very well and we look back at it in 10 years and think geez they were a little bit ahead of the curve and what they were trying to touch on there so I think that will probably look in its favour but for the moment I think it's doing quite well to be in consideration this year mm. I saw somebody make the point that with the Ukrainian crisis and the talk around Zelensky and some of the reaction about him being, you know, people fawning over Zelensky and how good looking he is, is quite similar to what mm. Don't Look Up we're trying to portray with the reaction. So that I, I thought that was uh, quite interesting that you've seen it sort of reveal itself in, in real life circumstances, albeit tragic real life circumstances, obviously. So uh, look, there is going to be some football talk here. I will run through the categories of the Oscars of the Premier League for 2022. So best actor, you have the best player of the season. Best supporting actor, the best player who didn't get enough credit all year. Uh, best director is the best manager, of course. Best picture is goal of the season. That's a stacked category this year. Best screenplay is the best team to watch this year. Best costume design is the best jersey. Best editing is the team that has done better than you expected. So the team that has improved the most this season. And then Lifetime Achievement Award. This is for somebody in the Premier League past that we think deserves a Lifetime Achievement Award. So let's get into the Oscars of the Premier League season. Okay, so let's start with Best Actor. Who are we going for here, Ronan Mullen? Who are your nominees and who gets it? Oof, it's tough. Like, I think nominees... Like, just to put it out there, I think Mo Salah is going to run away with this this year. I just think he's been such an impactful player. And then it's kind of the usual suspects beneath that. Like, we're getting into a point, like a mini Ronaldo versus Messi race, where it's always going to be Kevin De Bruyne and Mo Salah. But I think Salah just, like, the, the conversation, which is in the ether at the moment and has kind of captured the zeitgeist, is whether Liverpool should pay him. And it seems somewhat absurd that like the best player in the world is having to have a bit of a contract wrangle to get the money that's um, on the agenda for him. But I don't know how you lads feel about whether he should be paid and what it does to the pay structure, but he's operating on such a level where there aren't many people in the Liverpool dressing room who can say, oh, Mo Salah's on X. I want to be like reimbursed to reflect it. Like short of maybe Virgil van Dijk, who has similar importance in that team. I just think he's been so important. And if Liverpool do make a charge for the title, which they seem to be, and close it out, he's obviously been central to it and will be central to it for the last 10 games. So I think Mo Salah gets that gone. Yeah, yeah I, I, I... 
Sorry, go ahead, Will. No, I was just going to say, Andy, like when it comes to the payment side of things, right? Again, I think there's a very good chance that Mo Salah, unless there's a remarkable finish to the season from another player, say maybe Bernardo Silva or Kevin De Bruyne, and say City just go on a remarkable run, Mo Salah is most likely going to win player of the year. Like again, he's gone over 20 Premier League goals. He's got, contributed more than 10 assists. So that's over 30 goals and assists for the season, which is remarkable with still about 10 games to go. And I think you do pay him. And I think the reason that you should pay... Mo Salah, even if you're overpaying him when he goes into his 30s, is to try and pay him back almost for what he's done for Liverpool as well. Um, how central he's been to winning their sixth Champions League, how central he was to them winning uh, their first league title in a couple of decades. And if you're going to pay anybody and break the wage structure for anybody at Liverpool, it's him. I take the point that Virgil van Dijk is equally important from a defensive point of view. And you could probably argue that Alisson has been you know, a game-changer signing as well. But just what Mo Salah has contributed, where he could well go down, and they've got a lengthy list of fantastic number nines as Liverpool's best ever forward by the time that he finishes up his career. I think you have to pay the man. And I think you have to accept you probably will be overpaying him when he goes into his early 30s relative to his talent. But I don't see any reason to think that Mo Salah is actually going to be a poor player in his early 30s anyway. Mm. I'm going to make an argument against that in just a sec, but I want to hear who your nominees and who your best actor is. Okay, so the other nominees I have, I'm going to pick Mo Salah as my winner, but the other nominees I think that are quite close on this one, and I think if we were picking this back in the end of the year, if this was a calendar year, Bernardo Silva would have had a really good chance of winning. I thought he had a particularly excellent uh, first few months of the season. He's been at a high level all year and has been you know, Manchester City's best attacking outlet, I think, throughout the season. So I think Bernardo Silva is definitely right up there. I'll throw one that's kind of unusual, but two that are kind of unusual because normally this award goes to, with a notable exception being Virgil van Dijk a few seasons ago, goes to forwards for the best part yeah. attacking midfielders yeah. um, Joe Cancelo and Trent Alexander-Arnold have been so key to the two top teams in the Premier League and how they play like Joe Cancelo has not played as a typical fullback he's played in this kind of almost an inverted central midfield position at times uh, under Pep Guardiola as well but he's so good at carrying the ball forward for a Manchester City team who were so dominant in possession. And Trent Alexander-Arnold, I think, who took a bit of flack for some of his defensive play early in the season, how much has he contributed in attack for Liverpool this season? Like his passing, his crossing, he has been absolutely crucial. I think sometimes we forget about fullbacks when we talk about awards at the end of the season. I don't think either of them have had a better season than Mo Salah, but I think some recognition should definitely go towards Joe Cancelo and Trent Alexander-Arnold as well. Fullbacks are the new wingers, so really we should have them in our consideration for uh, you know players of the season. Because I, I actually would make an argument that Trent might be more important to Liverpool than what Mo Salah is, even though you're getting all the goals from from Mo Salah. Look, the reason I would say don't pay Mo Salah is that history will show you that it is not a good idea to break your wage structure for an aging player, especially the type of player that Mo Salah is. I'm not arguing that he's not probably the best player in the world right now or that he hasn't contributed enough to Liverpool to justify a new contract. But I think at his age, cash in now, get your 120 million for him. And if there's any club in the Premier League that I trust to invest that money wisely, it's Liverpool. So I I genuinely think they should cash in on Mo Salah. Don't destroy your wage structure. Bring in two or three players that's going to, you know, fill up the gap. Look at the way that Jota has taken Liverpool by storm, and even uh, Diaz, since he's come in, has obviously just looks like a Liverpool player straight away. If they can get 120 million in, especially since they don't spend money in the same sense that Man City do and the United do, I think that would go a long way to building Liverpool's future rather than building it around 
this one player, look at look at what happened Arsenal with Mesut Ozil and with Aubameyang. You know, it really does have a huge impact on the rest of the squad. So that would be the argument I would make against it. In terms of the Oscar for the best actor, my nominees, and this Mosala is nominated, but I'm putting him in the Leo DiCaprio <laughs> award section. I'm putting him in that role where he doesn't get it, even though everyone believes that he should get it. So he has, he, he can, that means Mosala is going to get it in a season that he doesn't deserve it, like when Liverpool precisely, scored, precisely. scores 15 yeah. goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. It was like when Ryan, it was like when Ryan Giggs got into the uh, you know the the team of the season on his last year at Manchester United. That's 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 where Mosala is. He's not getting it this year. He's the Leo Leo DiCaprio. Uh, other nominees: Bernardo Silva is nominated as well as is Trent. But a surprise one, an up-and-coming actor that, you know, people, nobody thought he was going to get this. I don't know who the comparison is for this, but Riyad Mahrez is my oh. best actor, my my player of the season so far. Hold on a second. I think he's up-and-coming. He is... He's already been footballer of the year. Not think... up-and-coming. I get that was a wrong phrase. Surprising one, I would say. Is this the Cuba Gooding Jr. kind of award with Riyad Mahrez where he's already won, then has a couple of decent films later in his career? People go, you know what, Cuba Gooding Jr. is actually quite a good actor. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. You know, people are realizing that Riyad Mahrez is actually quite good this season, having been, I think he's Man City's top goal scorer altogether in all comps uh, this season. And I think he falls into that weird category that Jack Grealish currently finds himself in, where he was just such a standout player at the club that he was at. Then he goes into Man City and looks quite ordinary, but that's just because everybody else around him is just so outstanding. But now Riyad Mahrez was able to almost cement himself as, you know, this really, really good player for Manchester City this year. So that's why I think he would get uh, he gets my he gets my best actor award. That's a great show. Like it's a bit like when Marissa Tomei won for my cousin Vinny. <laughs> like that was when, great performance in fairness. Yeah, great that's when when Leicester won the league. It's like my cousin Vinny, really. But then you actually look back at Marissa Tomei's performance. You're like, yeah, she she deserved it. And then you know, latterly has put together a bit of a career resurgence and. Like Mara is brilliant, and like I agree with both of you on Bernardo Silva. He's been absolutely phenomenal for a player who was a little bit ostracised. And Pep kind of takes a leaning towards doing this every now and then, where a certain player who's performed well from just kind of disappears from the team. And I remember Jose Mourinho making the point when he was still a relevant football manager in England, saying like, "What happened to Bernardo Silva? Why are you not asking Pep about him?" And then it did come out that. Bernardo Silva was seeking a move and you're probably thinking his time was up at City, but he started this season like a house on fire and has continued in this role where he's not really, a, he's not number eight, he's not number 10, he's not a winger, he's a bit of everything and he's very fundamental to what City are doing. So yeah, he's a great shout as well. And like, I almost pick Salah because I know he's going to get it and that's just the narrative build around these kinds of players. And I think he's kind of a shoe in for it and I think that's possibly how it's going to play out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bernardo Silva played centre defensive midfield at one point as well this season and he was outstanding. So he's just such a key player to that man City side. Let's move on to the best supporting actor. So this one's actually tough to nail down as what we're supposed to be getting at here, but I've put it down as the player, the best player who doesn't really get as much credit as, you know, the the Salas, the Kevin De Bruyne is the the best supporting role essentially is is what this is. So uh, Will, do you want to take us through your your uh, nominees and your win- winner? 
Yeah, so the person I've picked to put forward for this is Rodri, who, again, sometimes is a little bit forgotten about in the Manchester City system. But I think Rodri's actually had his best year since going to Man City. He's been more involved further up in the midfield too. Like initially when he came in, there was this feeling that Rodri was going to be the sitter within the midfield and he was just there to kind of clean things up at the back and move the ball forward. While his passing has been really progressive this year, he's been getting further forward almost at times a bit more like Gundogan, where he will just play a pass, go forward again and get involved a little bit closer to the box. I know he's helped by the fact that Manchester City dominate possession against most teams, but Rodri has added that little bit to his game up towards the final third this season, which maybe wasn't there last year. He scored an unbelievable goal against Everton, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in the goal of the season and nominations a little bit later on. But I think Rodri's been absolutely excellent. There's a few other players that kind of stand out. Two goalkeepers I kind of want to give a shout to. How important Aaron Ramsdale has been to Arsenal since he went to the club. There were many eyebrows raised when he was signed because Bernd Leno is a very competent goalkeeper and there was that feeling do Arsenal really need Ramsdale or how will Ramsdale fit in I think he's had a transformative effect on their defence this season he's been really really good um, the, probably one of the best defences in the Premier League Wolves I think Sa in goal has been really crucial for them as well I think both of them have been really important sometimes goalkeepers are overlooked because this is meant to be the you know best supporting slightly overlooked actor uh, category and a player who's really stood out uh, towards the top of the table as well and I'm sure you guys have been impressed by him as well Jared Bowen uh, with West Ham has been so so good um, in a season where you know West Ham are threatening again to be in the top six and are into the quarter finals of the Europa League and Jared Bowen has been crucial to that so they're the four that I'm going to put forward with Rodri being my best shout for best supporting actor I didn't even think of putting Jared Bowen in there because for me he's a leading role you know he's mm. just waiting for that mm. opportunity to get it and in terms of Ramsdale I, I don't I think he's probably the player who has received the most hands up I got it wrong apologies from football pundits me included, because I don't think anybody expected him to be this good for Arsenal. And he has been exceptional. I do think he has a ceiling that he will reach, but I mean, nobody was relegated. Is, that ceiling is making a mistake at the World Cup later this year. Yeah, that, that ceiling, lads, just that ceiling hits him on the head a good bit as well. Because if we look at that Liverpool game last yeah. week, he yeah. literally, like, he, he cost Arsenal the game practically. So, as much as, and it's probably something we've talked about a lot on the show, it's there's an emphasis on distribution and his distribution is amazing, but like some of his fundamentals aren't possibly at the level for a top team. And that's what Arsenal aspire to be. He's still very young in goalkeeping terms. He's still very young in general terms. So he'll get there. I know his reputation preceded him in, you know, relegations early in his career. And, you know, that didn't, that wasn't helped by playing in lowly teams in the Premier League. But, you know, I think he has, he has the personality to do well. Um, you know, he seems to cope with the pressure all right. So I think if he can just iron out those little kinks and doesn't go down the Jordan Pickford route, he should be uh, he should be Arsenal's number one for a good while yet. Yeah, there must be somebody just injecting these English goalkeepers with a shot of confidence when they go into goalkeeper academy because I mean, there's the confidence that these English goalkeepers have compared to their ability is just through the roof you think about and I love Joe Hart now don't get me wrong but <laughs> if you think about if you think about young Joe Hart and what he had oh. and now Jordan Pickford and then Dean Henderson uh, inexplicably Dean Henderson <laughs> thinks he's like I don't know Gigi Buffon or something yeah yeah um, so Ronan who's your nominees? Nominees, yeah, like the criteria is a little bit tricky. Like I do have Jared Bowen in there as well. I did enjoy that meme that did the rounds a little while ago when we were talking about the Mo Salah situation and it's that scene from Moneyball where they're like, we can't replace him. 
but we can replace him in the aggregate with, and then snaps his fingers, Jared Bowen. So if Liverpool do sell Mo Salah, I think it will be like a combination of players rather than just one big marquee signing. And Bowen, I think, would be perfect for Liverpool because he's um, he's got the work ethic that Klopp requires. He'd hit the ground running in that regard. Clearly got an eye for goal and can play all across that front line. So to your point, Enda, like he has been West Ham's main man. Like He's taken that mantle from Antonio in the forward line. I know Declan Rice is still the central pivot of everything West Ham do. So I'd have Jared Bone in the mix. He possibly has uh, crossed over into the leading actor role. So I'm not going to give it to him. Alan Maximan, similarly, like he's not up there with the very best Premier League players in the sense that he's not in the conversation that we were having earlier. But I still love watching him. He's one of those players that you kind of, you nearly watch Newcastle just for watching him. Then similarly, like Joel Matip, like he just won player of the month. So I can't be saying he's mm-hmm. underrated either, but like Virgil van Dijk gets all the talk. And when we went through Liverpool's absentees last year, Matip wasn't really the one that was being mentioned, but he's been absolutely brilliant this season. And, you know, as as important as van Dijk in many of those games, one that you might like Enda and may not like, Stuart Armstrong for oh, Southampton. Yeah, I love it. Love yeah, because like, like it's not a coincidence that when Southampton are playing well, it's when Armstrong's got a run of games in the team because what he brings is that energy and quality. Like that goal he scored, it doesn't fall in the remit of this because it was an FA Cup goal, but like that wondrous sort of right, right-footed strike that had that CGI curl into the top corner, you're like, he's got that quality as well. So again, he's a Ras- Ralph Hasnutl type player. He, he ticks all those boxes and I think for MVP type standards in a team, He's very important as what's that happened to up there with Ward Press, I would say. But I'm going to give it to Max Kilman from Wolves. Oh. Because, like, all this talk about Harry Maguire and the next Eng- great English centre half, and you're thinking this guy came from nowhere similarly, like, came up the leagues and has been so polished in that Wolves defence. And there's a huge onus, especially under Bruno, Bruno Lage, to, to play out from the back. And he's got that futsal background where his toes controlled really good and you wonder, did he have the physicality to make it at the top level? But Wolves, I don't know what you lads feel, they've gone up another level. Like, they were very good under Nuno and he made them very solid. And possibly Nuno doesn't get enough credit for how like, quickly he got Wolves to ascend into like a credible, sustained Premier League force. But Lodge has kind of finessed them a little bit more and made them um, more attractive to watch. I think Kilman's been very important in that as well. Yeah, they're they're better to watch, but yet still don't score many goals. It's a bit of a, you know, maybe they might take that step up next year where they progress the attacking side of it a little bit more. I love your shot for uh, Stuart Armstrong, by the way. That it, it, it's definitely a love for that. This this is actually this is a tough one because as just we're naming a few players, a few more were coming into my head. So originally I had down James Ward-Prowse, but I mean he he's sort of the leading role in that Southampton team. I have Connor Gallagher which is, you know, he's similar enough in that Crystal Palace team, albeit he's probably going to be a leading role in a couple of years' time. Um, Baki Yosaka is in the same role as that for Arsenal. Again, probably underrated in the large scheme of things, but in that Arsenal side, he's so important to it. Um, and then a few more were coming into my heads. Uh, the likes of uh, Jacob Ramsey for Aston Villa has just come from nowhere and is suddenly one of the most exciting players to watch in the Premier League all year. And I, I don't know who to go for, but I think the guy that falls into this category correctly and probably is the best supporting actor is Diego Jota, or Di- Diogo Jota, rather. I mean, 
who would have who would have seen foreseen him becoming one of the most important players for Liverpool when he signed? I think most people would have said that the price tag was far too much considering his role at Wolves, and he just comes in and puts Roberto Firmino out of his position. Is a key man for Liverpool has scored really important goals, has filled in for for Manny and Salah when they were out uh, for the African Cup of Nations, and he just you know if you take him out of the Liverpool side. Firmino comes in and might get a couple of goals, but I think he's a real key man for Liverpool. Yeah, I think and this was always going to be difficult when Liverpool went into the market to try and get someone uh, to help cover the front three, was to try and get a player who initially wouldn't want to be demanding a start, which in the case of Diogo Jolly, he was happy enough to work and to be maybe in a bit of a supporting role. And that's probably why he's perfect, actually, for this category uh, when he first came to the club. As you say, he can play across the front three. Um, initially, he was filling in when there was an injury, I think, to Mane. He got in on the left initially, then covered for Salah a little bit and then got the role uh, through as a centre forward. He adds an extra little dimension to Liverpool, though, because as well as Bobby Firmino is able to both press and be very important within Liverpool's system and also link up the play and he's a very good false nine. Diogo Jota now keeps defences honest by being so good in the air and so good at leading the line and even getting in behind as well. He has had a remarkably good season for a player that I really thought was going to be just a bench player who would come on when Liverpool needed something different. And even similarly, Luis Diaz has come in and had an immediate impact as a backup for their forward line as well. So I think about two years ago, all the debates we were having were Liverpool have got a great front three. They're great because of each other and the system works because the three of them complement each other so well. Huge compliment to Liverpool's scouts for picking two players that have fit in pretty seamlessly into the system. And in Jada's case, adding that extra little bit to their attack as well. Yeah, big time. There are a few bigger categories that we do want to get to because, you know, you can spend a bit more time talking about them. But I suppose one thing that you we probably won't spend too much time, so we'll we'll run through it really quickly. Uh, best costume design. So that's the, the best jersey of the year. I mean, this it's not a great category this year. Everybody's a bit, you know, iffy with their color schemes and with the, <laughs> the plainness of some of the designs running. Arsenal, the vintage t-shirt brand before the football club these days are an easy winner for me. No, I totally agree. Arsenal's here for me as well. They've All three are, are nice and kind of, they tie into the traditional colour scheme that Arsenal would have used back in their heyday and it's probably no coincidence that they've managed to recapture some of that form with, with that in mind. I think this is probably the best Manchester United series of kits since David Moyes' season in charge and like, Fittingly, they've been absolutely apocalyptic this season as well. So the jerseys have been the only saving grace for, for Man United this year. Um, Leeds' third kit, again, hasn't been a great season for Leeds, but I like that little off-purple sort of number they've got there. Aston Villa, I think, have a nice three-shirt combo. Like, I have to give credit to these teams that can... Sometimes you can hit lucky with one, but they seem to have all three are quite nice. But I'm going to give it to the West Ham away, Argentina, um, in honour of Argentina whatever it is I don't know if Manuel Lanzini demanded it as part of his contract but it's a, a beautiful kit so that's getting my vote Yeah it's quite nice there was a game this season I can't remember who it was where both teams wore the away kit do you remember this Will? I think we were tweeting about it at the time and they were both blue like one was off oh. blue and then one was blue I think it might have yes. been Brighton against someone but I can't remember what it were was, che- was Were Chelsea terrific. involved in this? Chelsea have had a few now where they wore blue against a slightly different shade of blue during the season I'm like I know it's for marketing reasons that sometimes teams will not change kits so that they get a certain amount of games where it's actually played 
But oh, it kills me when teams go out in the same color or roughly in the same color. I've actually gone really bold for this one, Enda, for my pick, by the way. I've gone for Spurs. I think it's their third kit officially, but they've worn it a few times. It's the one that looks like it's actually a, an art project in fifth year yeah. school. Yeah, where the it's purple dark, one. And there's just yeah. splashes of color all over it. I think if you're going to go bold with an away kit, go for this. It's one of the better ones that Nike have had in recent seasons. I, I'm not sure about Spurs as an overall sense, but my favorite jersey is that Spurs away kit. I do like West... I actually like all the West Ham's kits this year. Of the home ones, I think Arsenal have got the smartest one where they've gone back more towards an Ajax-style design where there's the red and a bit of white to the side and no real messing around with it this season. I think it's a very classic Arsenal kit. And they're... The Liverpool away is quite nice as well. Um, not the yellow one. You know the one that's kind of a creamy color. It's yeah, exactly I thought you were talking same. about the yellow one there. I was like, Meh. no, no, no. It, the cream, the creamy one with the green. It's almost yeah. exactly yeah. the same cut as Roma's away kit from last season as well, which people were raving about. So Liverpool kind of got that design twelve months later, but it's no less nice even having to wait a year to get it. Didn't Liverpool have mm. a similar one in like the Robbie Fowler years? With that where green was factored into it. Yeah, I think that was also sort of like a classic design. That's a that's a really nice one as well. Yeah, no, they like wearing green and white and cream. They kind of just mix the two together. But I think this one is just really, really clean, nice design. Mm -hmm. This is Team 33 on Newstalk and on Off the Ball. We're running through our Oscar nominations for the Premier League season of 2022. Loads to come still after the break. Let us know your nominations and your selections for all the categories as well on 53106. We'll be back after this. Now you're welcome back to Team 33 and a call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening. On tonight's show, we are running through our Oscar nominations for the Premier League season of 2022 with the Oscars coming up now in the next couple of days. So, so far we've gone through our Best Actor nominations, so that's the Best Player. few controversial ones in there. If you want to check that out, you can get them in the podcast. Best Supporting Actor is the Best Player Who Doesn't Get Enough Credit. We've done our Best Costume Design, which is the Best Jersey. Now we want to get into the main stuff. So the best director. So this is the best manager of the season. A few nominations you could have for this one, Ronan. There's been some surprisingly, surprisingly good uh, management uh, in the Premier League this season, some pretty poor management in the Premier League this season. So who are your nominees? Well, obviously Frank Lampard. No, I'm only joking. Uh, <laughs> we've got, like, it's a tough one. I, I'm tempted to give it to David Moyes because, like, West Ham have no divine right to be even in the conversation for Champions League football and yet he's he almost got them there last year and you know they just bounced right back again without any serious investment I know Kurt Zimmer brought a little bit of baggage with him in, least, in recent weeks that was probably their, their key acquisition but it wasn't as if they splashed the cash in a massive way but have managed to maintain that level with you know not the most star-studded of the size. I know Declan Rice is a hugely important figure there. And, you know, if they do sell him, how they reinvest that money is going to be critical. Like 150 million is what was being touted yesterday. I think it'll be some way short of that. But still, you're probably looking at 100 million. So, like, how Moyes chooses to reinvest that money will be key. But I think he's worthy of a nod. Like some of the other names I mentioned in the first part of the show, um, Bruno Lage, I think what, what he's done at Wolves has been impressive you know, it was a tough gig to follow from what Nuno had done because he derived an identity there at Wolves and, you know, Lage came in and didn't want to like wholly change the personnel or anything, but has tweaked the style of play. And, you know, I think they've been impressive, as you said, possibly not the most free scoring side, but, you know, like 
there's no question that Wolves are going to be struggling any given year. And I think he's probably trying to kick them on into being that European contender once again. Ralph Hassan, like Southampton are a bit hit and miss. You know, they're, they've got these, they're a very streaky side. But I think when they're on song, they're they're very good to Yeah, when they're on song, they're very good to watch. And I think the resources as compared to some of their competitors in the league, they wouldn't necessarily be up there. And they tend to lose like key players every summer. Like Danny Ings was their main man last year. He was obviously gone and they had to try and reinvest that money. So I think he deserves a nod. But it's hard to look past Jurgen Klopp, honestly, like to get the award because we were writing off this title race. Well, I certainly was a couple of months ago thinking it's, it's all but done, but whatever way he's able to keep that whole squad on side, I know it's not a hugely bumper squad in terms of numbers, but it's certainly the biggest depth he's had. And he's able to, sometimes you look at the starting 11, you're thinking, geez, I wouldn't have gone with that for this fixture, but he seems to get those spot on more often than not. And having come from a point where he was relying on the same 11 to now being an excellent squad manager, in-game tactician, and if, if Liverpool can close out this title, I think he's an absolute shoe. And even in spite of that, to be on course for a quadruple at this juncture in the season, it's hard to look past him. So I'm going to give Klopp the nod there. I have a couple of comparisons from my nominations and who they would be as directors. So David Moyes is one of the nominations for this, as, as you said. I think he's the Steven Spielberg of the director's roles at the minute because everyone sort of forgot that he was he was actually really good back in the day and he's done some really good things and suddenly now he's doing them again and you're like, hmm, forgot you were this good at us. And uh, the next nomination is Patrick Vieira. He, I think he deserves a lot of credit for what he's done at Crystal Palace, the changing the identity of uh, Crystal Palace after Roy Hudson. And I, I full on thought they were going to get relegated but he's changed what the club is about. He's in the Christopher Nolan role because I think that's what Christopher Nolan did to film for a while. You know, you just see these copycats coming on, trying to make films as complicated as possible uh, after Christopher Nolan. In the Martin Scorsese role, that's Pep Guardiola. So, you know, like everyone everyone agrees that what he's doing is great, but how is it any different to what he's done in the last 20 years. He's just, he just keeps repeating himself. Everyone agrees it's really good and it's really top quality stuff, but it's still, you know, it looks exactly the same way that it did three or four years ago. And then Jurgen Klopp is the next nomination for me. I think he's in the Quentin Tarantino role where, you know, it's all action in your face, a little bit different to what Martin Scorsese did with similar enough ideals, um, but equally as good. Uh, so that's, that's my nominations. Well, who are your nominations? Yeah, I like your analogies. I skipped down past the top two managers because purely I think they're going to win when the season finishes. It'll go probably right up to whether Man City or Liverpool win the league to decide whether it's Klopp or Guardiola. But again, just incredible consistency from both managers this season. Even if you have seen it before from Pep, it's hard not to be impressed by a manager who goes out and potentially wins the Premier League without a proven striker. And I've gone for two that have been mentioned already would be in my top two. Patrick Vieira, definitely, because I thought Crystal Palace 
Ross were pretty much certs to get relegated. Hadn't really thought a huge amount of what Patrick Vieira had done in his coaching career up until now. And then he comes in, they play a nice style of football, Conor Gallagher, uh, particularly in the first half of the season, but really trouted. He's been really, really good, has elevated them to a point that they're completely safe with two months to go. While I think David Moyes deserves to be right up there because West Ham really shouldn't be breaking the top seven two seasons in a row, which it looks like that's what they're about to do. Like we remember the Super League almost happening last year, or at least the English clubs applying to be in there. Those seven teams have got such financial resources ahead of West Ham that it's almost a miracle for West Ham to be finishing ahead of them. And they flirted for times with the top four. It looks at this stage that Arsenal are going to be the team who get into fourth place and West Ham will probably finish in sixth or seventh. But to steer them to that position while also going on a really good run in Europe, where it's not unthinkable that West Ham might get to a semi-final of the Europa League against Barcelona, that just goes to show the job that West Ham have done. Because ultimately, you know, finishing in the top seven is about qualifying for the Europa League next season. I'm glad they're not doing a Martin O'Neill on it, where remember when Aston Villa were sitting in fifth and they effectively forgot about a game in the UEFA Cup away from home in Moscow because they were concentrating on qualifying for the UEFA Cup the next season. I'm glad, even with their stretch squad even, that West Ham are trying to give both a go. So I think David Moyes deserves massive credit. He's taken so much flack since 2013 and it took a while for him maybe uh, to get things back on board. But these two spells he's had at West Ham have been really, really impressive. Mm. Yeah, I remember, was it Mark Lawrenson was chatting on the show on OTV Football Saturday at one point and obviously he's good friends with uh, David Moyes and Moyes had told him that he'd almost rather not get Champions League football or he'd, sorry, he'd, he'd rather get Champions League football or not get European football at all because of the difficulty that navigating the Europa League while also trying to mount another European uh, push in the Premier League, the difficulty that is with a club the size of West Ham and the budget that they have. But to do so, I mean, it is really, really impressive what he's done with West Ham from where, where they were. So he he is actually my best manager as well for the season. Um, Ron, you went with Jurgen Klopp. Will, you're... David Moyes as well. And so, Moisey as well, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think David Moisey just just about ages it. He didn't get this on the uh, technicality. He got it on, <laughs> on merit this time. Uh, right, best pitcher. So this is actually a tough one because there's so many goals scored throughout the season, but this is for the goal of the season. Will, you uh, helpfully sent me on uh, a, a nice little video package that had all of the best ones from all the months and it rejigged my memory a little bit for some of the goals. So I'll let you run through your nominations for this one. Yeah, it's a really helpful one. If you go to the Premier League website, they have one up until, I think it's game week 26. So effectively, they've got all of the goals of the month and some other that were very close contenders into a seven-minute package, which is worth the watch, even if you're not trying to pick the best one of the season. So the ones I was looking at, Lucas Moura against Norwich, if you remember that one where the ball is played into him where he's in a contested area with about two or three players around him. Takes a not particularly brilliant first touch, rescues it on the second touch, gets it out of his feet and then hammers it into the top corner. I think it was the best goal uh, back in either November or December. That one is remarkable. The two others that I think you have to put forward here would be Mo Salah really early in the season, the dancing run against Manchester City, which he then shifts back onto his left foot and puts it into the top corner. And then one that feels like a bizarre mirror of that goal going the other way, which was Clodoranieri's first game in charge of Watford, where again the ball broke to Mo Salah. He had to do a messy style jig to get past two or three players. And then automatically, you would be assuming if you're a Watford defender, if you're Ben Foster, he's going to do the exact same thing as the City goal, chop it back onto his left foot and curl it around. 
and instead he used his right foot and put it into the other corner. So I think both those most solid goals should be up for consideration. The Rodri one that I mentioned earlier as well and Kovacic both scored crackers from a little bit outside the edge of the box. We remember the Kovacic one around Christmas where uh, Kelleher punches it up into the air and it's a very difficult skill where it's coming down at a very high angle before he has to hit it. And Rodri similarly had one where it was kind of cleared out past the edge of the box and he just hits the cleanest strike into the top corner. Uh, that game was against Everton earlier this season. So I think there's four or five maybe to throw the debate open. Ronan? Yeah, I think ultimately the Salah goal, given the gravity of it and what it could mean for the title race, like it was, it ended as a draw, but to do it in, you know, effectively the top two teams duking it out. And that felt like the zenith of the conversation around Salah of, well, this guy's the best player in the world now. You know, like what he did in such a congested area as well described against Man City and, you know, left players strewn on the ground and drilled it into the only part of the goal where he could conceivably score. It's just phenomenal. And that was a brilliant game as well. It kind of typifies what that rivalry has been like. All their games have been helter-skelter with tremendous quality. So that's that's hard to overlook. And similarly, the one against Watford is, is a joke as well. So I think I'd probably lean towards the Man City one. The other one I would mention is... I think I might have alluded to it already, Lanzini's goal against Crystal Palace, where he just, it's such improvisation. Like a lot of these goals, if you look back on like whenever the Premier League Twitter page puts up the goal of the Monk contenders from 06 or something, it's often Maddie Taylor just roofing one from 45 yards. <laughs> but what Lanzini did was like, he possibly like mistook, miscontrolled the ball initially, but like improvised so well and turned it into like a succession of touches which put the ball in the air and he, he volleyed it in against Crystal Palace. And that was when West Ham were on their possibly best run of the season and they managed to close that out. I think a 3-2 win um, at Sellers Park. So I'm giving him that one. Plus, it was definitely, he definitely thought he was playing for Argentina at the time because he was wearing that jersey that I mentioned earlier. So I think that's possibly why he got the, the Samba flair out. There's so much football on these days and it's so relentless and you never know what game week you're on from, from week to week because there could be a random game on Tuesday. I was in disbelief that that Lanzini goal was this season. I was, I was almost like, <laughs> it, it was so long ago that I'm, I'm, I'm like, are you sure that didn't happen last season? But yeah, that was incredible piece of skill. I really wanted to give it to Kovacic because that was the one I had picked out originally. And I've forgotten about the most solid goal against Man City. I mean, you, you can't not give it to him for that. It, it is, there's only two players on the planet at that point in time that you'd say could score that goal. And that was Messi and Dalla yeah. at that point. So It was a very um, messy goal, wasn't it? It was a very... Very messy goal, yeah. Like um, it was something you would, on one of those messy montages from, from about 10 years ago, just just the control of the ball and, and the finish. Like there's just nothing you can do in that situation. It's one of those rare goals where the defenders just have to hold their hands up and be like, you can't do much with that. Yeah, exactly. You have to foul them otherwise, or, or you know, there's not much you can do. So that I think that's the the best, um, best goal of the season for sure. We'll run through a few quick ones before we get to the lifetime achievement award, because I want to get to that before we, we finish up the show. Um, Really quickly, Will, best screenplay. So this is the best team to watch this year, not the best team. Yeah, I've been really born here. I'm going to pick Liverpool because I think Liverpool still are the best watch if you're a neutral. Um, you know, they've got such an incredible attack. They move the ball so quickly between the lines and generally they've been involved in a few cracking games this season, um, chiefly among them that Man City game right at the top of the table going back to the start of the season. So I think, yeah, if, yeah there's plenty of teams you can watch where you're going to get lots of goals. Um, like, let's be fair, Bielsa's leads were probably interesting to watch just purely uh, for the amount of goals going in at either end, particularly being scored against Leeds this season. Um, but I think Liverpool are still the best team to watch. 
Mm. I'd agree with that. In, in, in a perverse way, running Man United, if you're not a fan, <laughs> were actually quite good to watch this year because of the amount of goals they conceded. There was you were always likely to get a pretty decent game. Um, but they they're in a lot of boring games, though, Enda, is what I would say back to that. Like, how many times do you watch games like I don't know, particularly games at Old Trafford at home, which have just been absolute bore fest that Manchester United have been involved yeah. in? They are they are truly a shocking team. It's a really funny bad. thing. It's a funny concept because you remember the early part of the season the conversations we were having on the show about, you know, United, they mightn't be solid, but they have so much attacking talent in this team that their games are going to be entertaining and there'll be a lot of five fours. And it's actually turned out to be quite the opposite. It's just a malfunctioning mess at the moment where there's just no joined up thinking whatsoever. So like they actually were more, they were more entertaining last season when behind closed doors and they seemed to have a little bit of fluidity about them as much as it seemed to be off the cuff under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think uh, my award for this would be Crystal Palace, just on the basis of what you've been saying earlier. There's just so many likeable elements of that team. You know, the Elise, Zaha, you know, Edward, that attack in front three. And like, there's obviously a few beyond that in terms of their attacking options. And then Conor Gallagher has been, you know, I don't know if he falls in the category of young player of the season, but he certainly should be in contention for it because... He's been central to everything they've done. And, you know, like the change in a matter of months from what Roy Hodgson did, and I, not to demean the job he did, because he, like, as we were saying about other teams earlier, there's no there's no notion that Palace are in danger of being relegated. Up until this summer, though, where like they had so many free agents and players leaving the team and there was a huge overhaul, but just shrewd signings like Anderson and, you know, all these little acquisitions where you think, oh, he plays for Crystal Palace now, and you're thinking they've really managed to, to nail that down. So I think they've been one of those teams in like the, the lesser lights where if they're on TV on a Super Sunday, you're more inclined to watch them. So I'd give Crystal Palace the nod there. Mm-hmm. Best editing. I'm just going to run through this because I want to get to the Lifetime Achievement Award before we finish up. Um, I'm going to give it to Crystal Palace as well because I don't think anybody expected them to be this good under Patrick Vieira for the first year, mm-hmm. especially given... You know, Patrick Vieira's patchy managerial career to date. I think he's done really well to stabilize a club in in flux and to improve it. In 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 the sense of what you were saying, I, I think Roy Hudson was a manager who, you know, he was there for survival. And now Patrick Vieira has almost come in and said, Right, to survive, we need to thrive a little bit more. And mm. he's just made it a little bit more comfortable for them. So I'm going to give best editing to them, to Crystal Palace. That's, um, all, I, all I would add to that, like on the Arsenal vein, is Arsenal themselves, because like what Arteta has done there, like it's less about their swashbuckling or anything like that, which they are. Like they, they put some very eye catching goals like Arsenal of yore, but it's more like how sound he's made them at the back. And, you know, the little tweaks they've made chiefly in terms of personnel because the Aubameyang thing, as much as he was kind of dismissed as a, a written-off force and it was good to get him off the wage bill, like he's still shown in the last week or so that he's got ability and like could have been you know, an impactful player for Arsenal. But Arteta decided that it was better for the team ethos that, you know, let's give the younger lads their head here. And the way Martinelli and Smith-Rowe and Odegaard and Saka have stepped up in such a big way they possibly wouldn't have done that if Aubameyang was there so I think that was the key editing of the season and if Arsenal not to put the jinx on them here but they should get four plays from this juncture and I don't think anybody would have picked them for that at the start of the season and certainly not after the first three games so mm. I think he deserves a lot of credit for that yeah he was, not just they because were also he's so handsome and we, we thought he yeah. always got this job because he knew Pep Guardiola and because he was handsome but he's actually proved he's a decent manager as well 
Well, that's always a bonus. Um, right, really quickly then, Lifetime Achievement Award. This is for someone who you think in the past of the Premier League should receive a recognition for what they've done. Uh, we don't have much time. We have about three minutes. So, uh, Will, who is your Lifetime Achievement Award for the Premier League? Yeah, my, my one's pretty simple because I think he's probably just after managing in the Premier League for the last time in his career, and that's Claudio Ranieri. And the reason that I'm going to put Claudio in here is he's a much beloved character, firstly, but also he pulled off the most remarkable managing job of all time when he brought Leicester to the Premier League title. And look, I think people still look back fondly to his time in Chelsea, and he was a bit of fun back then for the best part, but I don't think anyone would have expected when Ranieri took over at Leicester, uh, particularly when he'd gone through a few difficult jobs like Valencia and Juventus where it hadn't quite clicked for him, and then he got the Leicester job, brought them to the Premier League title. They won, I think, everyone's affection. Nobody really, I don't think even Wolves or Aston Villa fans had any particular issue uh, with Leicester winning the Premier League title that season. Has carried himself with complete dignity. Went into, I think, a poor job this year uh, with Watford, which was a difficult one to start with. And now he's probably finished as a Premier League manager, so I think it is the right time to put him into the Hall of Fame. Run. Yeah, my main criteria for this was to try and pick somebody that there was no chance that you two were going to pick. So I was trying to avoid repetition. <laughs> so I've gone for, somewhat randomly, Edwin van der Sar. Because Ooh. you look at 1995 and you think of this young rapscallion emerging onto the scene in this amazing Ajax team. And he wins the Champions League under Louis van Gaal. And geez, sky's the limit for this guy. And then by the late 90s, he's, he's a forgotten force almost. He's at Juventus, it's just not working at all. You're thinking, what's, the, what's going to happen for Edwin van der Sar here? And then he ends up at Fulham. And Fulham have just come into the Premier League and you're thinking, geez, you know, Dutch number one is at Fulham, you know, who are Premier League newbies and like, what's going to happen? Is he going to see Ed's days in West London here? And, you know, it was a, quite a, a depth force for Fulham. Actually, like, recaptured his love of football there, recaptured his form. And then United were having their ailing issues post-Peter Schmeichel. They had the Bosnich fiasco. They had Barthez, which didn't work. They had the duopoly of, it was a Tim Howard and Roy Carroll, which never obviously yep. worked either. And they were just scaring around for an option. And they bought Edwin van der Sar for two million. Edwin van der Sar comes in at, at 35 years old and you're thinking, this is a nice little stopgap for uh, Manchester United to see them in through this traditional period. They have a few young, young players like, I don't know, Bruni, Ronaldo, the likes. And then van der Sar becomes the fulcrum of this team that goes on this incredible run, possibly the best team in Premier League history from that 06 to 09 period. You know, they set the defensive record during that time with successive clean sheets. And this was in front of an ever-changing back forward. This wasn't necessarily the village Ferdinand every year. There was obviously Johnny Evans stepping in and others. So he was obviously the key man there. And then most importantly, since he's retired, he hasn't disgraced himself like 90% of former Manchester United ex-players. He's shown the gravitas he has as a football mind and he's um, he's been key in what Ajax have done, you know, in their recruitment and, and so on. So I think if, if Manchester United have any cop on, they will put newfound Hall of Famer Edward van der Sar in charge of their footballing matters going forward. But I think he deserves it. Well, that's another topic altogether. Two worthy nominees. I'm going to go with Arsene Wenger for obvious reasons. I don't think I need to explain that any further. As, as long as he doesn't try destroy his own reputation with this World Cup fiasco that he's trying to do. Um, it's been disappointing to see him pushing as hard for FIFA but uh, I think genuinely that, done, is, that is the one reason I didn't want to nominate Arsene Wenger when I was thinking of people who deserve to be in the Hall of Fame was purely the biennial World Cup is now a mark against him yeah big time big time anyway that is our Oscars for uh, this year's Premier League 2022 might do this again next year run 
Absolutely. Sign me up. Yeah. All right. Cheers, lads. Cheers, lads. Cheers, and- all right, so that is us done on this week's Team 33. Thanks to you for listening as ever. If you want to get that podcast, it is available now in the OTB uh, Podcast Network, which you can get in your app store or in whatever podcast uh, app you use for listening to podcasts. I said the word podcast too much there, so that is uh, time for me to wrap up Team 33 for this evening. We'll be back in, in the same time, same place next week, but until then, take away, Johan. Johan. <laughs>